You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We are in our series right now called Just Like Jesus, looking at the character traits and emotions and actions of Jesus and wanting to um, become more like Him. That is the heart desire of every Christian as we desire to uh, grow and uh, mature in Him uh, and learn more about His way for us. Uh, as we look at that today, we're going to look at maybe something you haven't thought about uh, in emulating Jesus the nature of being tempted, uh, just like Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reads this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be super scripture heavy this morning, meaning that we're going to be all over the scriptures to get at what the key, uh, get our get at our key text this morning. And this may feel a little bit uh, odd to you if you. Uh, listen to how I normally preach. Uh, I don't tend to jump around in the scriptures when I'm I'm preaching um, because I really want to get at the heart of whatever a particular text says uh, and not um, take from other uh, other texts around to try to prove the point of what I'm trying to make a particular text say. Uh, that's known as what is called proof text, proof texting, um, and it's not necessarily that it's a bad thing, but it is a it is a something that is easy to mess up. It's easy to uh, inject into the text what you want it to say, rather than allowing it to say just what it says. But this morning we're going to be looking at a number of other texts because the text that we're in references those texts uh, and draws our attention out to those other things intentionally in such a way uh, as to emphasize it to us. Uh, so these Old Testament texts that we're going to be looking at we're going to be, are going to be helping us unpack uh, the heart of this particular passage that we may be very, very familiar with. So let's read it and refresh ourselves as to what this story is. It's going to be something that you're going to be probably familiar with. In Matthew chapter 4, verse, uh, starting in verse 1, it says this, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give His angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. This is the Word of the Lord. This particular story of Christ is like a homemade cinnamon roll. It's got layer upon layer in this coiled up in this one little text, and the closer you get to the center of it, the better it is. And so as we walk through this text this morning, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be enjoying the goodness of God, but we're going to be trying to get closer and closer into the center of this text. So we're all probably pretty familiar. with. Uh, if you've been in church, I mean, hardly at all in your life, you've probably heard of this or uh, seen this in one of the TV shows or something like that. But we need to understand that this story, though it seems just like a, an exposition and um, you know how to how to be good at suffering, you know we could just summarize it in way of you know when you're tempted at things, just throw scripture at it, uh, and and Satan will leave you alone and it'll be all right. But this passage of scripture, this particular narrative of Jesus' life, holds such weight in the whole timeline of Jesus' life that it changes the interaction of evil against him. From here on out. So who are the characters of the Bible narrative that we just read? Well, I I find five in this. We're going to look at uh, some of them very briefly. First, we see Jesus. Second, we see the Holy Spirit. Third, we see the devil. Fourth, we see God the Father. And fifth, we see angels. Angels show up at the very end, so I just want to give a, and they're, they're only just a, a slight statement, it just says there in verse 11, and angels came and began to serve Him. I want to give just a, a quick word about angels to kind of give a, uh, a little bit of perspective on this. Um, no angels anywhere in Scripture at all, anywhere in Scripture, uh, are portrayed as a blonde Norwegian guy in white robes with wings. Just, I just wanted to come out and you know, clarify that from the get-go. Nowhere and anywhere in Scripture does it portray that uh, image in that. Nor are they what the Internet's most recent biblically accurate angel de- depictions are, which is kind of this ring-looking thing filled with wings and feathers and eyeballs all over the place. And they say this is actually a biblical, uh, you know, a- biblically accurate depiction of angels. Again, no, that's, that's actually not uh, how it is there. They're also not these little babies and diapers with wings. That's not angels as depicted anywhere uh, in Scripture. Uh, every picture that you've ever seen of an angel was a cultural representation of what was believed about angels at that particular time. Uh, And that's changed over time. If you go back and look at uh, history and look at the history of Christian art as it's uh, depicted throughout time, um, most of that is uh, influenced through the Renaissance period uh, and such like that that depicts uh, angels in, in different kind of forms. It's one of the reasons why I actually believe Scripture was written by God and not by man, as maybe the world would try to put us for it, is because angels show up very early, like 
end of Genesis 4, kind of early, man sins, God kicks them out of the garden, and God puts an angel to guard them with a flaming sword, and that's it. There's no other description. There's no other, like, this is what the angel looked like, and this is what his name was, and this is what all... None of that stuff is there. It's because that didn't really matter. That wasn't part... That wasn't the emphasis of the story. And if man had written that, they would have. Like, introduce new character, fully develop new character, right? That would be the way that we would do it. But it wasn't, it wasn't that way. So angels show up throughout Scripture... And every time they show up, there is fear by the one seeing them. They're, they're terrified by what they're experiencing this. But it's, it's portrayed to us in such a way as to say, even in other places though, that some people, uh, when they have shown hospitality to believers, have entertained angels unaware or unknowing. And so there is the, the picture of angels and it, it makes it feel like this kind of mystical story that's in here, but they play just this tiny little part at the end and, and that was not the big point. God the Father shows up in the narrative, not necessarily directly, but indirectly in the form of the title in question of Jesus. Satan asks Jesus, if you are the Son of God, now this story is going to have huge implications as we'll see about how Jesus teaches the disciples to pray our Father who is in heaven. Uh, the Father shows up in the story uh, directly adjacent to this one just a few verses before this one at the end of chapter 3. Uh, Jesus has the bab- His baptism where He's baptized by John and the heavens part and the voice of the Lord speaks and says, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And the Holy Spirit lights upon Him not as a dove, manifested in a dove, but it says that it lights on Him like a dove uh, landing upon him. And so we have the Holy Spirit's role is one of leading Jesus. And it's fascinating to me because the Holy Spirit is the embodiment of love of the Father and the affirmation of the declaration of God to everybody listening about Jesus as His Son at His baptism. And immediately following that incredible display of God's tangible love, His tangible affections towards Jesus, immediately following that is the willful direction of Jesus into an incredibly hard, 40 days in the wilderness struggling they're hard the person and work of the Holy Spirit is both to be the presence of God but also the leading of God and we see that as Jesus teaches about the Holy Spirit in other places that he says like to his disciples he says it's good that I should leave you because if I don't leave you then the helper a person a clear, distinct identity within the Godhead, the, the Holy Spirit. It's not the force, like some Jedi mind trick thing or something. That the Holy Spirit is not a thing. It's a person within the Godhead. And he says, it's good that I leave because then the Helper will come to you and He will lead you in all truth. So it is the presence of God, but also the leading of God is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. 
And this leaves us with the last and most significant characters of this particular story. The ones that get the most screen time, if you will, in this drama. The Jesus and the devil. Now we're just on the outside of this uh, cinnamon roll. And I mean, all cinnamon rolls are good, right? But there's a little bit of the outside of some cinnamon rolls that are a little bit, little bit tougher, right? And so we always want to get to the inside, but we need to, we need to unpack some of the, the rough exterior of this story a little bit. The devil is not a name. The devil is a title. The same thing uh, as in verse 10 when Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. This is not Jesus using a name. It's you, Him using a title. A formal title. Mm-hmm. Devil in Greek, Diablos, and Satan, Satanos in Aramaic, Jesus would have been commonly, sp- Jesus didn't walk around speaking Greek, He walked around commonly speaking Aramaic. Uh, And so it's the same word. Uh, Satan is just transliterated into Greek, Satan. Uh, And they both mean the same thing. The accuser. The accuser. This title, different languages, same meaning of the accuser is the, the image that is used again and again, this title that is used of Satan again and again and again throughout this particular story and throughout the Scriptures. Though many have taken uh, of the very scant few verses in Scripture concerning Satan and have built entire stories around him, theologies and such like that, I think it's helpful for us to just realize that God doesn't give Satan that much screen time in His Word. We do. We make entire sitcom TV shows about the character of Satan. He shows up anything that's Christian or whatever. Satan has a a screen time in it, but he doesn't actually show up that much in Scripture. And I think it's important for us to realize that God doesn't give him that much authority. Uh, He doesn't give him that much play in there. That's because Satan is not the joker to God's Batman. Uh, He's not the yin to God's yang. He's not the dark to God's light, as though Satan was God's opposite equal. And the world has a lot of that within its theology, that there's God and Satan, and they're uh, diametrically opposed forces against, right? You have the United Nations and the Russian Confederation. You have God and you have Satan. And depending on which side of that line you you know you think which side is you know you think is is the good and which side is the bad, but that's not the way that Scripture depicts Satan, and I think that's important for us to realize uh, and to understand. He's not a little scary gremlin with a pitchfork in hand. Again, that's that actually shows up uh, in some of the earliest um, Roman mosaic art pieces uh, depicting some of these protections. This particular story, if you look throughout art history and look at um, when this story is first portrayed in Christian art, uh, it's Jesus having these experiences. And this little, small, gremlin-looking thing holding up a stone to him. And him standing upon a precipice. But it's this little, scary, gargoyle-looking thing. Uh, And again, so some of that has seeped into our mindset of what this looks like. 
He's not a little scary gremlin with a pitchfork. Rather, he's the best of the best at evil and has been from the beginning. He is the accuser of the brethren is another way that the Scripture describes him as. One that speaks accusations. Slander is another term that uh, it can be translated as the slanderer of the brethren. One that speaks untruth and unkind simultaneously is one that slanders. And here's the challenge that we have um, as we uh, think about this. That Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit, specifically according to the text. You read how it said there. Jesus was led up by the Spirit for the specific purpose of being in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So I want you to think about the implications of this. That the Holy Spirit of God, the embodiment of God's love on Jesus, leads Him from the... uh, instigation of his ministry, if you will, at his baptism, into 40 days in the wilderness, fasting, starving, if you, in that kind of a scenario, for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil. Does that not seem odd to anybody else? Seems like just, what in the world is God doing? Why in the world would God do that? It seems like such a, a strange... Experience, And yet, we know this passage of Scripture. Think, think about this for a moment. The only reason we know this passage of Scripture is because Jesus told it to His disciples. Were any of His disciples there with Him? Nope. He's by Himself in the wilderness. The only reason we can know this story is because Jesus intentionally taught it to His disciples. Why? I think that's the reason why we can look at this and say we can learn how to be tempted just like Jesus because Jesus knew His disciples were going to be tempted the same way that He was and He wanted them to be able to endure because He had. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit according to the text to be perazo. Your translation might say tempted. If you have an older one, it might say tested by the devil. And here's the challenge that we have with the word perazo. It means both tempting and testing in English. In fact, if you're reading through your Bible, uh, same Bible, same one, you may find a place where it says, uh, and Jesus was tempted or, um, uh, you know, Uh, Judas was tempted. And that word there that is used is this word. But it might also say in your same Bible, the Pharisees came to Jesus to test Him in these matters. And they said, you know, what about marriage? Or what about, you know, these kind of things? And they wanted to test Him in these kind of things. They say the same thing. And so in those cases it's best to translate them as to test Him. But tempting and testing, uh, so the, the word, the Greek word, does mean tempting and it does mean testing. But the problem for us is in English, the word tempting and the word testing don't mean the same thing. Right? Like, uh, you would never say, I'm going to tempt you to see if you know the right answers to the questions about math. Right, you wouldn't use that. You just—it's not good English. You wouldn't use that kind of thing. So to say, I'm going to tempt you 
we also never tempt people to do things that are good, right? Like that's never, that's never, it's never the option to say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tempt you to love your neighbor, right? That's never a good thing. It's, it's, I'm going to tempt you to, you know, uh, uh, to, to, to cheat on your diet, right? That, it's always a negative connotation to it, right? Whereas testing, uh, it's, it's not necessarily like bad thing. If you fail the test, bad things may happen, but that's not the point of the test, right? The test is to show what is true. That's what the test is. If you, get, if you take a test in school, the whole point of it is to know, is it true? You say, I've studied, I've learned this information, and I know this information, and the test proves, or should prove, if it's written well, whether that is true or false, right? So temptation indicates that there is a negative potential outcome to this scenario, and that's why they translate it in this context into English, temptation. But, te- but testing reveals what is true. So, perazo, meaning both, it is a hard circumstance that reveals truth that could have negative ramifications. This word, it means a hard circumstance, a hard situation that reveals truth that could have negative ramifications, negative outcomes. And this is important uh, to know that temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Sin is sin. To break the commands of God, to break the edicts of God, to go against what God has said is true, that's sin. To be tempted to do so itself is not sin. And for a lot of Christians, this is a struggle that they have because they're wrestling with this in the context of saying, you know, I don't know if I, you know, if, if I really am a Christian, if I really am changed by Jesus, why do I struggle so much with sin? Why this particular uh, besetting sin, this particular thing that just, I, I'm struggling with greed or I'm struggling with lust or I'm struggling with pride and I'm always struggling. And, and really, in some of those instances, it's them saying, I'm so tempted to do it. And if I'm so tempted to do it, How can I really be a Christian? It is different to be tempted to do something than to actually do it. When we are tempted to sin, and then in fact sin, the temptation revealed what was true about us, that we are in fact sinners. That's what the temptation does. It revealed what was true about us. So Jesus was brought by the Holy Spirit to the accuser, to the devil, to reveal what was true about who he actually is. So let's look at those as quickly as I can here. The first test was the test of God's character. The first test was the test of God's character. After he had fasted 40 days and nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter approached him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, God must not live, or man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is fully man. He's not some disembodied spirit of God that's floating around that just looks like a, you know, an apparition of, of man. He really is man, and he hasn't eaten in 40 days. 
it would be kind of foolish for us to think that food has not crossed Jesus' mind at some point in time, right? If you are, that's the question that the test of the truth of who Christ is as the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, turn this stones to bread. You're human, you need bread. If you're the Son of God, that's something you can do. That's not a big deal. Prove that you are who you say that you are. That you exhibit power over created things. And Jesus' answer gets at the deeper into this beautiful cinnamon roll that we're eating this morning. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Now I want you to take your Bible out and go flip over to it. We're going to look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 8. So way back in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 3. This is specifically what Jesus quotes to him there. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Moses writes, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. For 40 years, the Hebrew people, God's chosen nation, wandered where? The wilderness. In the desert. Eating what? Manna. What is it? This stuff from heaven that comes down. And literally, they walked up to it and they said, Manna. What is it? What's that? And they... They ground it and they made it into a fine flour and God provided for them for 40 years. And at the end of that, God's provision, they're literally in the middle of nothing. And every day they've got food and they don't have to do nothing for it. What do they do? They grumble. They grumble. And they say, wouldn't it have been better that we had been left in Egypt? Wouldn't it have been better if we'd have still been slaves and in bondage? Wouldn't have that been better? But to die out here in the wilderness eating this manna. And God through Moses points to them, they says, 40 years wandering in a wilderness, and you thought that the end goal was to eat bread rather than the fact that you get to hear from the living God. Man does not live by every bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Why does Moses tell us this? The answer is in verse 2. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. The Israelites were God's chosen people, something that they were very proud of. Fed by God Himself with manna from heaven, and yet they grumbled and didn't trust the Lord. God delivered them, and all they wanted was bread. 
They were tested. And did they pass the test? No. God's chosen people, the people that bore His name to the world, failed the test. And if they didn't pass the test, what does that say about the Lord who covenanted with them? If they didn't pass the test, they the ones that God says, My Spirit will be with you. You will be My people. I will be your God. And if they failed, what does that say about God's character? Can He be taken at His word? Can He be taken for being true? Jesus' first test points back to the truthfulness of God Himself. God had said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And Jesus' response is to say, the most significant thing in my life is not bread. It's not the normal functions of the human body. he's, He's literally saying here, it's not that Jesus is saying, yeah, I can just starve to death and that's fine. Like, man doesn't need bread. He's saying, man doesn't need bread alone. Because here's the thing, if we all we did need was just bread alone, there'd be nothing different from us and every other created creature on the earth. The fish lives to eat what it eats. The cow lives to eat what it eats. The dog lives to eat what it eats. They just live on bread alone. They're not seeking the will of their Creator. They're not seeking an audience with the one that loved them. The most significant thing in my life is not bread, but the reality that God has spoken and I am listening. Jesus passes the test that the Israelites, God's chosen people, could not pass. And left to our own devices without the sovereign intervention of God, we will live just like the animals, pursuing only what our flesh tells us it wants next. Forty years wandering in the wilderness and the Israelites failed the test. Forty days starving to death in the wilderness. Jesus is tempted in the same way, tested in the same way that Israel was, and yet passes. So the first one is a test of God's character. The second test was a test of God's Word. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city. Now, uh, there's a lot of, I guess, theological argument about what is happening here. Um, is this that literally the devil snatches Jesus up and they fly on a carpet and all of a sudden now they're in in the temple and he's standing on the actual physical temple uh, mount looking down as he's seeing the precipice there and all the people walking and then Satan does this thing. I tend to uh, think that this is a little bit more like what we read in the Old Testament when the prophets had vision. When they saw themselves, these disorienting moments in which it says, and then I saw myself, and then at the end of that it says, and then there I was in my own room, in my own, my own place. That there's this sense of Satan is giving him a, a vision, if you will, of being at that, uh, on that precipice, seeing the place there. And he says to him, the devil took him to the holy city and said to him, stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down. For it is written. What does, Jesus, what does Satan do? 
throws back some, hey, you're throwing Scripture out? I can do that too. Here's some Scripture for you yourself. For it is written, He will give His angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. The first tactic didn't work. So the accuser changed up. And what does he use? He uses God's Word. He quotes to him Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, which reads this, Do we know of any other time... Oh, sorry, let me back up. Uh, Let's actually read that. Psalm chapter 91. I didn't actually write it down there in my notes. Flip over to Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 11. Psalm 91, verse 11. For He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up on their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Now what an incredible passage of Scripture Psalm 91 is. It is a a psalm, a song of hope, of trust in the Lord. It begins in verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It is a psalm of utter faith, utter trust, utter belief in who God is and accomplishing what God says that He's going to do. And Satan takes that beautiful psalm of trust and he says, hey, you're the son of God. You should be the one that's the best at trusting God. So throw yourself down because he said the angels will catch you so that you don't even strike your heel on there. And you can allude some things to this. It's almost even like, and all these people that are wandering around the temple, they'll see it. And they'll see that you really are the son of God because that doesn't happen to anybody. Anybody else that steps off the temple, they smack on the ground. They're dead. That's all that they are but you the angels will catch you and they'll see and they'll believe and all these kind of things do we know of any other time when a being came to one representing humanity and took the words of God and used them in a way that was manipulative do we know of any other any other particular Bible account where there was one person that represented all of humanity and somebody came slithering in there's a mnemonic device there, to take God's Word and what? Manipulate it. Well, of course, it shows up in Genesis chapter 3, right? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did He really say that? The answer should have been, no, and cut the head off the snake. That should, have been the, that should have been the answer. That's not what he said. He actually said, you shall eat of any tree in the garden. That's, that was actually the words of, of God to Adam. You shall eat of any tree in the garden, save one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For you know that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Satan goes to Eve and says, did God really say? Putting into question, taking the words, very words of God, throwing back back into man and saying, let's see what your heart is. And Eve's response, lest we give her a hard time, has been the same response that all of us have had. 
Her response was, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. She saw that the fruit was good-looking and was good for food and able to make one wise. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And she took and she ate and she gave to her husband that was with her. The second test that Jesus experienced was a test of the truthfulness of God's Word. Did God say what He said? And do we believe it? But Satan throws that in such a way as to manipulate it. Well, don't you trust God? I mean, you're the Son of God. Don't you trust Him? You should be the one that can trust Him most of everybody. Deuteronomy 6.16, Jesus responds, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him in Manasseh. You shall not take God and put Him in a situation where you're forcing Him to prove Himself to be as He actually is. Back Him into that corner. That's not our place. We don't get to do that. We're the created beings. He's the Creator. We don't spin it around like that. And Jesus takes what is true. Taking God at His Word. God, you say that you are forgiving God. So let me do this thing to see if you'll forgive me. That would be us putting God to the test. God, you say you're forgiving God. So let me see how bad I can be to see how forgiving you really are. I'm going to test you in this. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's that's the temptation that is thrown to Jesus. And Jesus does what Adam and Eve could not do. He takes God at His Word. He takes God at His Word. The third test is a test of God's plan. A test of God's plan. In verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will simply fall down and worship me. That's one of those verses that you could take out of context, right? If all you had was just that verse, right? Somebody handed you a coffee cup that just that all that it said was, I will give you all things if you will fall down and worship me. You're being like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's a good, nice Christian thing. Context, right? Context. And then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. We've actually now come to the warm center of the cinema roll. This is the best part of all of this. The accuser is so evil. He's so evil. He takes Jesus up in vision, and it's, it's almost like this slideshow kind of thing, right? He, he waves His hand, and kingdom upon kingdom, nation upon nation, people upon people. He sees their splendor. He sees their power. He sees their might. He sees the Mayans. He sees the Incans. He sees the Romans. He sees uh, the Patagonians. He sees every, all the nations, all the kingdoms, all the power, all the splendor of the world. And He says, if you'll just simply worship Me, I'll give you all of these. They're all all yours. 
They're yours to have. We often see evil play out on a personal level. We see evil transpire between individuals. But to see evil play out on a national and an international level is actually really something to behold. If you could have the power to stop evil governments, would you do it? If you had the power today, just... Putin, you're done. It's done. No more. Congolese rebels, warlords, no more raping, no more plundering, no more human child trafficking. Done. Somali pirates, you're done. If you had the power to just stop it, would you? We would think, yeah, of course. Why not? And if I could grant you that power and all that you have to do is just honor me and I'll give you that power, wouldn't you do it? We live in a day in which things seem to be getting better in a lot of ways, right? We've got facts, you know, the, the probability of us dying in our sleep from a marauding army is the lowest it's ever been in history, right? Things that used to kill us, we've got vaccines for now. But in the midst of all of that, because that's been a lot of our experience, it's also hard to forget that the 20th century, that century that we just came out of, all of us in this room, save those that were born uh, after the year 2000, were born in, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. An estimated 187 million people were killed by war. Not by disease, not by other things. Literally another human being ending their life. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. To think of evil on that kind of a grandiose scale, to say, if you could stop it with your hands, would you do it? The accuser changes tactics again. He doesn't even question Jesus' sonship. He just goes straight to his, his own character. He doesn't say, if you are the Son of God. He just uh, rather goes to the implications of what that role means. So you're the King. That's who, if you're the Son of God, you're the King. You're the King of all things. Just worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. Oh, and by the way, here's the way that works. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to serve. You don't have to experience loss. You can just have it and it's yours. All you got to do is worship me. But it's backwards from God's kingdom. It's a test against God's plan. Christ will not rule over evil kingdoms. Rather, He will rule in spite of, rule, of evil kingdoms. His response to Him is He says, Get behind me, Satan. And Satan leaves. Do we read that anywhere else? That same phrase, get behind me, Satan? Does that show up anywhere else? Shows up in Matthew. A little while later, in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 21. After that glorious event where Jesus goes to His disciples and He says, Who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're John the Baptist reincarnated, maybe one of the other prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, 
mouthpiece Peter stands up and says, I, I, I you know, grew up memorizing the King James on that, right? So it just sounds authoritative. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? And blessed are you, Peter, for man did not reveal this to you. And that whole picture that's there. And immediately afterwards, it says this in verse uh, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. What? You're talking about kingdoms. You're talking, you're the Messiah. You're the King. You're the one that we're looking for. And you're telling us you're going to go and suffer? And not only suffer, but you're going to die? Oh yeah, you're going to be raised again. But you're going to die? Right? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And said to him, Far be it from you, Lord. This plan's not good. This plan's not true. This plan's not right. This shall never happen to you. You're the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. That's not the way that this works. But he turned to Peter and he says, Come on, Peter. Let's get this figured out. No, what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The third test that Jesus enters into is ultimately it was Jesus having another Garden of Gethsemane moment. God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. I am to rule and reign over the nations from every tribe, from every peoples, from all people, a people redeemed to God. If there's another way other than me having to die, but not my will, your will be done. The final test was a test of trusting in God's plan for this. The story of the temptation of Jesus is the story of the gospel. I love what Bible scholar Tim Mackey has to say about this, about this particular moment when Satan confronts him and Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. He says, Every evil from this point forward in the New Testament wears the face of one defeated. Think about every other time that Jesus interacts with any other demon possessed person. They all know who he is, they all know what's coming for them, they know what the end is. They're ones that are defeated. They're still powerful. They're still influencing. They're still attacking. They're still being evil. And yet, they're already defeated and they know it. How do we do temptation like Jesus? Well, Jesus didn't leave us ignorant of it. Think about these words in light of the story we just read. Just think. Don't repeat after me. I just want you to think. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into 
temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's as if when they ask, how should we pray? Jesus is immediately back at the end of day 40. And He goes, how did I pray? And what was true? Do we believe God's character? When we're tempted, a lot of times our temptation is putting us in a place, regardless of what the sin is, to ask the question, do I believe God's good? Do I believe He actually has my best interest at heart? Do I actually believe that what he, uh, his, his intentions for me are right? And if I say no, then I engage in sin because I don't believe His character is good. And so the action to that is to turn to His character and say, I believe this. Secondly, when we come to that, God reveals His Word to us and we're left with the question of saying, do I believe what you said? Listen, I'm here to tell you I've been a believer for a really long time and there's still times when I read things in Scripture and I'm just going like, my flesh wages war against this. My nature doesn't like this. I don't want to do it. I don't want to believe it. But God, You have said it. And so I trust You. I'm taking you at your word. I'm not taking your word and manipulating it in such a way as to, for it to be used for my own advantage. I'm trusting you at your word. So when the Bible says something sin in my life, I submit to that as a reality even if I don't want it to be sin. And thirdly and ultimately, and this is I think the profound point, is that the Gospel teaches us that God's plan was so upside down from our plan. Right? And it was upside down from the disciples' plan. They thought Messiah come, warring guy, going to kick out the Romans, everything, and it just gets better and better, and we establish the kingdom, and now we rule and reign with Him, and everything's great. No suffering. No loss. No heartache. What do we do when we pray, God, give us this day our daily bread, and no bread comes. Surely in the last 2,000 years, no Christians ever starved to death. Oh, yes, they have. One of the great Christian women of the faith is a woman by the name of Lottie Moon. you got to look her up. She died in China. She didn't have to die. She had a way out. But rather than escaping and coming back to the U.S., the land of plenty, the land of everything else, she chose to stay, give her food rations to others, and she starved to death, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. Became one of those individuals that birthed the church in China. When bad things happen, we are tempted to not believe God's plan. To substitute it with some other plan. And God's plan of the Gospel is to say, listen, here's the the promise. Don't ever believe that the day that you become a Christian, things get easier. Right? The day that you decide to stop drinking, that's a hard day. Because probably everybody else around you It's all they cared about. The day that you decided to stop uh, consuming uh, media, 
that had no edification for you, had, no, had nothing to grow you in, it's going to make you look weird to other people. The day you decided to stop participating in gossip, people are like, what are you? The day that you decide to take Jesus at His Word and live the way that He decided to live, it's going to become hard. You're going to be tested to see what is true. And here's, here's the incredible promise of this Gospel. That He who began a good work in you will see it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Or as the author of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, took this upside down kingdom, brought it into this world and said, this is what it means to be a child of God. Tempted just like Jesus. Tested just like Jesus. When we find ourselves in temptation, we can know that we are in good company because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. If we do stumble, if we do fall, if we're not yet what we were meant to be, the Gospel still meets us. He is still gracious towards us. That's the incredible nature of that. And His promise to us is that He will bear us out, not because we're able to endure, but because He has endured. He is our good hope. He is our good news. So when you're tempted... Do what Jesus did. It sounds kind of coy or fickle in today's world because it's on t-shirts and coffee mugs. But Jesus was the one that set the trend of it. You can literally say, not today, Satan. Not today. Thanks be to my, my Savior Jesus. Get behind me. Because I'm trusting the Lord. Trusting He's good, I'm trusting His Word, and I'm trusting His plan. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your incredible Word. Thank You that it is true and right and real. God, as we've looked at this uh, glorious story, I pray, God, that You would help us, because many of us today are feeling that temptation. We're feeling those tests. We're being pressed to see what is true about us. And so, God, let us... Uh, let us pass that test, not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. That we can say, what is true is I am a sinner. Great and deep. But I'm a sinner who knows his need for a Savior. And that we have trusted in you completely. That you pass the test for us. We love you so much, God. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.